Jire podcast, staying connected to your deepest values as you work for change. One thing that helps us stay connected to our deepest values, in my experience, is being connected to something larger than ourselves. By this, I don't mean connection to a human organization, though being part of an organization that does make a serious attempt to live by such deeper values can support each person in doing so. But organizations are built and run by humans and thus subject to serious failures as well as impressive successes and bringing people together to act in a way that makes the world a better place for all human beings. Private companies can make money in a way that benefits employees, customers, and the community around them, and they have been known to severely exploit workers, degrade the environment, leaving it for others to clean up, or be made bankrupt by corrupt leaders who walk away richer from the experience. Religions can motivate people to do much good in the world and can be sources of violent conflict and discrimination. So what do I mean by being connected to something larger than ourselves? I have two sources for what it means to me, my own experiences, and what I absorbed from my dad. My adult sense of what being connected to something larger means is different than my dad's was. He did not believe in God, in fact, at different times described himself as agnostic or atheist. I feel connected to what I would describe as an infinite beingness that is loving and knowing in ways that our human sense of love and knowledge are pale in comparison. I had some sense of that connection from a very young age, but didn't have a way to conceptualize it. In reaction to bad things I experienced many religious people doing, I claimed to be an atheist for many years. My dad was a scientist who nonetheless did and said things that I think indicated he had a connection to something, and I don't mean to say that in some way he actually believed in God. He didn't. But he did have a connection to something larger, and it came in several forms. One was his commitment to science. My dad was a physicist, and he loved exploring the natural world. He got a master's degree but never a Ph.D. Perhaps that had something to do with the time and money it would have cost him and us. But he was in love with the laboratory. He worked extra hours doing the research and practical work that led to being the inventor of the shadow X-ray microscope. He loved the work but didn't seek to become the manager. It was the connection to the science and engineering, the hands-on work that held his attention. Another was his work for the Boy Scouts of America. If he had been known as an atheist, he might not have been able to volunteer as a commissioner, which he did for many years. He took us to the local Unitarian Church, partly because there were other people like him who belonged to it, but I think he also liked it because the Unitarians would encourage the youth to learn about other religions and make up their own minds which one they wanted to join, or, or none for that matter. And it was a good place for an agnostic or atheist to avoid discrimination because at least you were seen to be at church on Sunday. 
and he was able to be a Boy Scout commissioner doing work he loved. As commissioner, he helped to start many a Boy Scout troop, including in working class and rural areas, and he was awarded the Silver Beaver, the highest award you can get as a volunteer in the Boy Scouts. He did this because he had a connection to nature and living in nature that went beyond his science degree. He grew up on a farm and wanted every child to have the experience of being out in nature. He wanted us kids to be drawn to a wonder of it. At one point, he did this by taking a gallon glass jar and half filling it with water from a nearby pond. It was somewhat greenish in color and had a few little tiny things floating around, and he put it in a south-facing window that was bathed in sunlight much of the time. Within months, there was a mossy green mass floating on the top, and he could see small creatures swimming around in it. Although the cover of the jar had a rubberized closure preventing air from entering, there appeared bubbles that developed under the green mass until it would finally turn over and begin developing those bubbles again. Those were oxygen bubbles that allowed a number of little critters to grow and live happily in the jar. It was a mostly self-contained world that lasted for years. For him, beyond mathematical science, nature was a source of wonder, and he wanted to excite that sense of wonder in young people. Another way he showed his connection to something larger was in terms of education. When we moved out of the city to escape social isolation over his divorce, essentially a 1950s form of cancel culture, the local elementary schoolhouse had three schoolrooms, a basement, and the principal's office. There were two grades taught in each classroom. Past the sixth grade, you essentially had to be driven into the city to attend high school. My dad got together with other parents, and they got up a bond issue to build a new school that went up to the sixth grade, and later worked with others over a larger three-county area to build a junior-senior high school that went from the 7th to 12th grade and covered children from the rural as well as suburban areas. He served on the school board for years because he believed in the importance of every child receiving a good education. This volunteer work came from a connection he had to the society around him, which showed up in his beliefs about the importance of this type of volunteering. He felt an obligation to make the world a better place. To me, all this amounts to a spiritual connection because a community is much more than just a list of individuals. And the sense of caring is a phenomenon that cannot be scientifically measured, yet still has an effect in the material world. I definitely got some of my values from my dad's example and the parts of him that held a sense of wonder and commitment to volunteer to make his community better for everyone were important in my own development. Another way his spiritualism showed up was when I was in high school. I participated on the debate team, and at one event there was a competition for students to recite a famous speech from history. When I told him I was interested, he offered up one from a hero of his, Robert Ingersoll. Now, Ingersoll was a famous abolitionist, Civil War veteran, and orator. 
He was an agnostic who wrote about humanistic philosophy and scientific rationalism. Though he died 16 years before my father was born, he was one of my father's heroes. Dad suggested I perform Ingersoll's oration at a child's grave. It is indicative of my dad's approach to other people's religious beliefs as well as his own deeper philosophy. Let me recite it here for you to give you a sense of one way of being connected to something bigger than yourself. Oration at a Child's Grave I know how vain it is to gild a grief with words, and yet I wish to take from every grave its fear. Here in this world, where life and death are equal kings, all should be brave enough to beat what all have met. The future has been filled with fear, stained and polluted by the heartless past. From the wondrous tree of life, the buds and blossoms fall with ripened fruit, and in the common bed of earth, patriarchs and babes sleep side by side. Why should we fear that which will come to all that is? We cannot tell. We do not know which is the greatest blessing, life or death. We cannot say that death is not good. We do not know whether the grave is the end of this life or the door to another, or whether the night here is not somewhere else at dawn. Neither can we tell which is more fortunate, the child dying in its mother's arms before its lips have learned to form a word, or he who journeys all the length of life's uneven road painfully taking the last slow steps with staff and crutch. Every cradle asks us whence, and every coffin, whither. The poor barbarian, weeping above his dead, can answer the question as intelligently and satisfactorily as the robed priest of the most authentic creed. The tearful ignorance of the one is just as consoling as the learned and unmeaning words of the other. No man, standing where the horizon of a life has touched a grave, has any right to prophesy a future filled with pain and tears. It may be that death gives all there is of worth to life. If those who press and strain against our hearts could never die, perhaps that love would wither from the earth. Maybe a common faith treads from out the path between our hearts the weeds of selfishness, and I should rather live in love where death is king than have eternal life where love is not. Another, another life is not unless we know and love again the ones who love us here. They who stand with breaking hearts around this little grave need have no fear. The largest and the noblest faith in all that is and is to be tells us that death, even at its worst, is only perfect rest. We know that through the common wants of life, the needs and duties of each hour, their grief will lessen day by day until at last these graves will be to them a place of rest and peace, almost of joy. There is for them this consolation. The dead do not suffer. If they live again, their lives will surely be as good as ours. We have no fear. 
We are all children of the same mother, and the same awaits us all. We, too, have our religion, and it is this. Help for the living. Hope for the dead. I never forgot this oration, though I didn't win any awards for reciting it. Intuitively, I knew it reflected something deeper in my dad, and in truth, it touched something deeper in me. It has always reflected a connection with him that transcended any ways I disagreed with him or was angry at him in my youth. I had plenty of reason to be angry between what I experienced myself and what I read about in American history and saw going on around me. Although I knew there were good people who happened to believe in a religion, to me the two were not really connected. I adopted atheism partly out of respect for my dad and partly out of anger at harms I saw being committed by religions and people who claimed to be acting on behalf of their religious beliefs. Atheism was in line with other ideas I became attached to in my youth, including Marxism. I wanted to have a theory that would defeat all the claims of people doing bad in the world and that I hoped would inevitably lead to a better, more humane one. In high school, I played football for three out of the four years. I wasn't in love with the physical contact, but I was desperately trying to fit in, pretending to be a normal guy, and hoping I could get approval from my dad, who also played football at high school. He never came to any games, partly because he was really busy, and partly because he worried about it looking like I was benefiting from favoritism because of his role as a school board member. He acted similarly when I was a Boy Scout. He wouldn't help me the way some other kids' fathers did. I didn't care in a way. For example, I earned the Life Scouting Award, but stopped when it came to the Eagle Award because you had to get a merit badge in religion. This felt totally hypocritical to me, so I didn't go any further. And I was already living with depression because of the beatings and from hiding as a transgender girl. The weight of it almost killed me as I tried to commit suicide at Boy Scout camp by going to the bottom of the lake and drowning. I didn't speak out much because I was afraid of the consequences for my family and myself. One thing that became a part of my belief system was, whatever you do, don't shame your family. While I lived in Schenectady, that meant not talking about the divorce, the beatings, which reflected my stepmother's depression, both of which would have been seen as shameful and absolutely not talking about my feelings of being transgender, indeed, not even allowing myself to think about them. Buck up and get on with it is what I grew up with and in many ways lived. My dad was a reformist, what was known as a Humphrey Democrat, and the best of him showed up in his volunteer work but not being able to speak up for myself in high school was painful and felt hypocritical to me. By the time I went to college, I was done with hypocrisy and injustice. I read about the American Revolution and the Civil War that ended slavery almost a hundred years later was to me the second revolution. I'd read about Reconstruction and the violence that ended it as people driven by racist belief and a determination to keep black people in peonage reasserted their political power. 
the way in which our country moved on past Reconstruction and Jim Crow segregation and accepted this counter-revolution also angered me, as did the treatment of indigenous people. I knew some stories of some of my ancestors who were Cherokee and knew that mistreatment of indigenous people continued. After the civil rights laws passed in the early 1960s, I watched as the Dixiecrats left the Democratic Party and were welcomed by the Republicans. Whites in the South left public schools and started all-white private schools, and there was violence against black youth who organized against racism. I honestly thought we were watching another counter-revolution like what happened after Reconstruction and that reactionaries would get control of the government and that this time there would be a lot of reactionary violence to stop civil rights advances. I was wrong in the long run, of course, but that was the way it felt to me and to a lot of other youth, especially black youth who had risked violent repression in the South in the 1950s and early 1960s. I was disillusioned with people who espoused reformism. I saw them as standing by while injustices went on, advising patience and the slow work of change. As far as I was concerned, the injustice was obvious, and anyone who didn't stand up, organize, and demand change right now was selling out to the old system. Life, of course, is more complicated than this, but the pull of the mass movements around me, my own analysis that was accurate but one-sided, and my personal life experiences pulled me away from seeing the complicated nature of the world around me. It was harder for me to go into my reflective and thoughtful mode and easier to go along with what seemed the smartest theory. And I felt a strong connection to my friends in the movement and to the ordinary people I work with as I saw the everyday struggles of their lives. I had stopped being closely connected to any Unitarian church after college. With all I experienced in my personal life, what I read about in history and saw happening in the world around me, I was critical of any organization that was large and influential that I didn't think was taking an uncompromising stand against injustice. I was frustrated with places that I saw as dancing around important problems and spent my time with those I thought were committed to justice in an uncompromising way. I think I missed a lot of opportunities for learning and growth. One example illustrates this. At one point, a friend of mine and I were contacted by the president of a United Auto Workers Union local for a large company. He really liked our militancy, our willingness to question those in authority, and our commitment to social justice. He said if I would work with him, he could help me get elected president of another large UAW local and that we could build a coalition to get elected as leaders of the National Union. I was skeptical of such reformist plans and declined. He later did make a serious, though unsuccessful, bid to be president of the UAW. I have no idea if my joining with him would have made any difference. My ongoing battles with depression until I came out as a transgender woman would have certainly been a negative factor. But the real loss was in not staying engaged with him, arguing with him about reform versus revolution and what I believed would be the violent counter-revolution that was coming. It could have been a learning experience.
by not engaging in those ways, I left myself in a little bit of a bubble, less able to be thoughtful about how to react to the world around me. I wasn't attracted to things like the weathermen who planned and did bombings and did not go to the protest at the 1968 Democratic Party convention because I thought it would end up with a lot of violence that would be incomprehensible to the working people I knew as a machinist. In fact, it is likely my life as a machinist that helped me stay closest to my values when I was able to. At times, I could have somewhat openly political discussions over lunch breaks with other machinists. The people I knew held a wide variety of political views, and our conversations were at times lively and engaging. I was able to be the best of what I'd learned from my dad in those times in terms of accepting others no matter what their political beliefs and just being real with them. My participation in organized political activity ended when I experienced a time when my underlying depression was particularly severe. I became inactive politically, and all I could do was eat, sleep, and work for about three years. I slowly pulled myself out of it, tangentially got reconnected with a political group I'd been a member of and met my future spouse. My two sons were born 13 months apart, and that made a big difference in my life. I was in love with them both right from the start, and living with the two of them forced me to get outside of myself. It wasn't that the depression went away, but I had a reason to live and strong motivation to be the best parent I could be. I made a commitment to show them lots of love and support to not repeat what had happened in my youth. In effect, I had to deal with connection to my deepest values on a granular level. I purposely hugged and kissed them and told them I loved them on a regular basis, for example. And when they got older, we took them to a couple of demonstrations and talked about why people protested. We also made a serious effort for them to grow up with children of a variety of backgrounds. I won't go into a longer story about this part of my life. You can read about it in my memoir, Turning Inside Out, which is available from Amazon. Two things happened in these years that helped me become more connected to my deepest values on a more consistent basis. One was my experiences with holotropic breathwork. This is a way of breaking through the ordinary constraints of your conscious life using music and deeper breathing. Twice, I had the experience of being immersed in or held by an infinite beingness, one that had qualities of love and knowingness that transcend anything possible in our limited human minds. It wasn't about thoughts, but about knowing I was loved. I had no explanation for this, and it happened twice. It was the beginning of my coming out as a transgender woman. I just knew I was loved in a way that had nothing to do with human thoughts or opinions. It took several years to break through the self-hate that I'd grown up with, but that finally happened. It started in 2005 when I came out to myself, and then 2008 came out publicly. The other thing that happened was when I knew I needed to have gender-confirming surgery to live as a whole person and to end one major source of the depression I lived with. 
Because of discrimination and the discomfort of many people about us transgender people, I couldn't afford the surgeries on my own. With the support of my women's group, I started a fundraising campaign. I made my campaign as much about raising awareness of all transgender people and the challenges we face as about my own need for surgery. To me, this was the right thing to do, to not just make it about myself. I also started agitating for an end to the prohibition by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to pay for these surgeries. I wasn't worried about myself. I believed that there were enough people in the communities around me that my campaign would be successful. I did it because I knew there were many trans people who relied on Medicaid especially who did not have access to the same resources. I had to decide how to do this campaign. I had plenty of experience in writing and organizing from my youth. I could have organized loud demonstrations. I would have done it all by myself if necessary. And I had the skills for writing scathing leaflets to shame those who had the wrong, quote, position on these denials. Remembering my own experiences in the 1960s and meditating on where I wanted to come from on a deeper level, I decided to treat people as though they were well-meaning, that they were trying to do their best to be good people given their circumstances, and to keep in mind that people often react because they think they have to. This led me to the place where I played a small but not insignificant role in ending the prohibitions. In fact, it made it possible for a black trans woman I knew to afford the surgery. It also led to my being invited to volunteer as a patient participating in system change in healthcare, and later to be hired in a role where I get paid to do just that. Getting to this point was a long journey. I made many mistakes along the way, but as I look back, I can forgive myself for things I did that I'm not proud of, and I feel good about the work I do now because I know that I make that conscious effort to really live my values, even when it isn't easy. That's what this podcast is about, and that is the conversation I invite you into. What are your deepest values, the things that lead you to be a good person? Where did they come from? What do you do to support yourself in living by them on a more consistent basis? What are the things that make it hard to do so? I think that just being thoughtful with yourself about these questions matters. What do you think? Thank you for listening. If you would like to be notified of future episodes, please sign up on the contacts page of sacredgyre.com.